Restaurant Unstoppable episode 456 with Chef Hal Holden Beish. And just, you know, had my, my loyalty, you know, every, every time I would go to work, um, like, what, what do you need from me today? You know, I'm here, I'm ready to work, you know, I'm young, I'm strong. Um, and, and that's what it was, you know, from like 20 to, you know, when I graduated there. And then even after, you know, graduating, like the way that you work in this industry from the age of, you know, 15 to 35 for me, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's your life. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. 89% of guests research a restaurant online before dining out. Your website is your first impression. So answer me this question honestly. What does your website say about your restaurant? Also, websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that can help you drive revenue. Head over to getbento.com and see why thousands of restaurants trust Bento Box with their websites. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you can save up to $1,500 on initial setup. Get on it. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months Free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Hal Holden Bates. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable oh, today? Oh, very, very unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, that's what we like to hear. So Chef Hal Holden Bates attended Shepherd University in his hometown of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. After graduating, Hal fine-tuned his abilities apprenticing at the world-class Greenbrier Hotel and Resort. When he wasn't apprenticing, he was seeking out the mentorship of certified master chefs and world-renowned restaurateurs. In 2002, he arrived in Nashville, Tennessee, and 10 years later, alongside business partner Kara Graham, opened Lockland Table six years later, or five and a half, I was corrected just before the recording. Uh, they're going strong to this day, and I can't wait to find out how you made this all happen and the path you took to get to where you are today, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? Well, you know, one thing we always use for a hashtag here at the restaurant is teamwork makes the dream work. And yes, I mean, it's so true. You know, I mean, yes, there's a chef who oversees the kitchen, but there's many employees who do the work of, you know, the chef and the sous chefs. And um, we've been very blessed at Lachlan Table since day one. Um, of people just walking through the front door um, wanting to work here. And, um, you know, we've made a couple of small uh, mistakes in the hiring uh, department, but uh, for the most part, um, it's been mostly positive, and um, we have a long tenure with our staff. Um, they, they tend to stick around for a while. Um, and just like in sports, you know, I, I always – 
like to say that, you know, chemistry is more important than talent sometimes. Although talent's important, um, you know, working with people who get along and, and, and creating that family uh, type environment um, is very important to Lachlan Table's culture and success. I'm sure we're going to dive deeper into what you just shared with us, but I, yes, 100%. I couldn't agree more with you. And I've noticed uh, in the 400 and I think over 450 interviews now, uh, the people who are successful realize it's because of their team. And then they know they can't do it without that team of strong people around them. So thank you for, for bringing that to the surface. So yeah, absolutely. let me ask you, uh, where did it all start? It sounds like you grew up cooking with your mother and all that. Mm-hmm. But when did you know you were going to commit your life to this? And how did you start living intentionally from that well, point? Well, and I mean, I think... You know, people often wonder, are people born to do certain things? And, you know, I think sometimes the answer is yes. Um, And then we also have maybe people who find their, you know, goal and and target through life. Um, But at a very young age, I I began cooking with my mother in the kitchen. Um, I think I was just drawn to it. And um, I think what really drew me to it was the fact that I enjoyed eating. and, you know, my mother and, and the, 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 the generation of, of us when we were kids, you know, mothers still cooked. You know, going out to eat was a very special occasion. Ordering a pizza from the local pizza joint was a very special occasion. Um, we ate at home. We cooked at home. We went grocery shopping. You know, uh, we grew gardens in the summertime. Um, you know, very connected to the kitchen. Um, and that is where it began was, you know, ultimately in the kitchen of my home with my mother. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of hope for the future because a lot of people are trying. I think maybe we got so far away from that. I think people are starting to realize the importance of doing those things that you just share with us. And I think we're trying to kind of lean back into that again. Have you seen the same thing? Over the well, past I, I think so. And I was recently at the, the Tennessee Food Conference where somebody said something that I found very interesting, and, and they basically said that it was like my son's generation, our, our children's uh, generation that um, is going to change this world back to the way it should be. Um, and, you know, we need to continue moving in that direction and, you know, showing them, you know, the truth and, and the growth and the farming and the gardening. And, you know, as I like to say in our book, um, getting your hands in the blood and the dirt, um, we can always wash our hands when we're done working, you know, so, you know, it's very important to just know where your food comes from and, you know, know your farmer and be able to visit these farms. And, um, you know, that's what we're doing here at Lachlan Table. And uh, it's, it's such a rewarding process. Um, and it just really makes you strong with your community. So you attended uh Shepherds University, you majored in culinary, so you knew going in at a young age, 18, 17, this is going to be your path, but when did you know for sure? Was it working beside your mom, doing all these things you were discussing before? Well, a quick story on that would be after 11th grade, I graduated the 11th grade school year with a 1.9 GPA, uh, making me uneligible to play soccer my senior year. Um, in summer school, they have a home ec class, which you know, we jokingly say is put in place for athletes to become eligible. Um, so I had to take summer school in order to, to play soccer my senior year, and I took home ec. Okay. And along with the sewing, um, we did a lot of cooking. And, you know, I found myself excited at 630 in the morning, waking up on a summer day to, you know, drive 20 miles to summer school because we were going to make pizza dough and, and everything from scratch. And um, it was definitely that summer between the 11th and 12th grade year in high school where 
you know, my mother actually said to me on a road trip, she said, you enjoy cooking and I think you should go to culinary school. And, um, I think I, in my head, I agreed with her. I don't know if I said it out loud. Um, but from that point on, um, it became my path and, uh, I've really never looked back since. since. So you, you go to uh shepherd university, you're attending, uh, culinary school at this point did you you said you never looked back but were you more convinced that this was the right path for me like where what were you feeling going through that those motions of, of attending university and uh how'd you come out of that situation well i've always enjoyed my time in the kitchen you know ever since the ninth grade i've worked in kitchens uh you know I, I worked in the ninth grade i would after school i would walk down to the local bakery and i was the cleanup boy um it was a bakery called yield sweet shop in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And, um, you know, I'd work from like three thirty to eight and then my mom would come pick me up. And that was like during non-sports seasons. Um, I would work, you know, my wife still kind of laughs at me now because I've been paying social security since I think I've been, you know, 14 years old when I get my statement in the mail. Um, but I always enjoyed working and I always enjoyed standing on my feet and working with my hands mm-hmm. and, um, I didn't really, you know, get into school too much. I, I enjoyed learning, um, but not so much, you know, sitting while mm-hmm. I learn. Um, so it was pretty clear. Um, and directly after high school, you know, I, I went directly into culinary school um, where I did think I would maybe take off a year and just work in order to make money. Uh, friends and family, you know, kind of thought that was a bad idea and, and thought I should immediately go into school so that I did not go to school. Um, I think we're really getting away from that school of thought. The more people I talk to, the more I realize and learn, uh, you know, schools has gone to the point where it's so expensive uh, and you're investing in this education. It might not even be the right education for you. I mean, you were lucky. This yeah. was your path. And this is where you are happy. But I don't necessarily subscribe to that that school of thought. Yeah, uh, where you you know need to go to school right away. Figure your shit out. Learn about what your strengths are. Learn about where you want to be, and then evolve from there and grow in, and then start investing in your career. So I don't I don't disagree. And I, with I think that. as a parent, I'll I'll you know definitely agree with that here. You know, ten fifteen years when it's time to start thinking about that for my boys. Um, but I, I do think that you know education is obviously very important in life, mm-hmm. and if not one of the most important things, um, you know the path of the education that I, I went and I, I seeked and found and accepted, um, you know, it's all very relevant to why we're yeah. sitting where we're sitting today. Yeah. But what is reg- what is education at the same time? Cause you, you did do the, the traditional university, but you also did the apprenticeship, right? Uh, which is a little even more traditional, actually. That's what we were doing before the university. Right? Sure. We're finding people who are good at what they do and we're surrounding ourselves with them, learning about them. So dive into what you were learning with that apprenticeship, what you really, you know, how you took it up a level there. Well, and you know, like you said, maybe even in Europe, you wouldn't even attend college. You would go straight into an apprenticeship mm-hmm. as, a, as a young chef, maybe even at the age of 14. Um, and your parents would sign you over to the headmaster who would be the chef. And, you know, the education and, and the hard work begins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once I went to college and, and I was working in kitchens during college, um, but when I graduated from college, I knew that I wasn't completely – happy with my education and and I didn't want to just be uh, an average chef at an average restaurant like I wanted to be the real deal Mm. Um, so that's what led me to then reaching out to the Greenbrier Hotel and Resort in southern West Virginia applying there 
Um, at that point in time, it was very difficult to get into the Greenbrier. You had to have a degree or, you know, five to seven years, you know, on-the-job training in, in very well-respected kitchens. Um, and, and luckily, I got accepted. And, and then even more luckily, I made my 30 days and became a member of the team. And, you know, I ended up spending five seasons of my life there. Um, two years getting into the program and then three years doing the program. Um, but, you know, we would leave in November and come back in April because being a golf resort, there wasn't a lot going on in the mm-hmm. wintertime. And we really weren't even guaranteed 40 hours a week of work. Um, I always took that advantage to go to different cities and work in other, you know, very well-known restaurants for well-known chefs, um, you know, such as New Orleans with the Brennan family at Palace Cafe, uh, Columbus, Ohio with Chef CMC, Hartman Henke um, at Henke's Cuisine. Um, and then ultimately, you know, New York City, the culinary capital of the world. And I worked at Gramercy Tavern, um, you know, for Tom Clicchio and Danny Meyer. Um, you know, one of the best restaurant tours possibly in the world. Chef, I got to slam on the brakes right now because I need to put emphasis on the path. Like most kids in college are going, okay, like a time for a break. But you're going like, okay, and it's time to lean in. Or not, you're, you actually graduated at this point. But, you know, instead of taking a break and going to the beach and relaxing during the, the down season, you're going surrounding yourself with the, with the greatest people you can get in front of. And I, I really do believe in my hard heart, like that is what you need to do to make it in this industry. You're the average of those you surround yourself with. And that's exactly what you did. Uh, so let's kind of spend a little bit of time here reflecting back at that time. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned surrounding yourself with some of these people? If you can just, you know, maybe go chronologically. I don't want to spend too much time, but the big lessons that you carry with you to this day, what did, what did you learn there? Well, you know, New Orleans was New Orleans, and, and the food of New Orleans is the food of New Orleans. And, of course, the Brennan family does it well, and, and I took a lot away from New Orleans. Um, but it hasn't really become a lot of who I am today. Um, you know, working for Chef Hartman Henke was a very big part of my um, journey, and it was probably one of the hardest parts of my journey. Um, he's a very strict, intense chef, and, um, you know, the way that we worked in that kitchen, just, you know, head down, hand busy, um, you know, it's, it would almost be against the law today to run a kitchen the way that he ran his kitchen. But you got to figure that these European chefs, the way they grew up under their chefs and, you know, how hardcore things used to be in the kitchen. And then, of course, how that's changed over the past 50 years. And, and if you study the kitchen and the intensity of the kitchen, you know, now we actually try to be nice to one another. Mm. Um, but, you know, back in the day, it was a, a totem pole and you knew your job and you did your job, you know. And, you know, although that kind of still is the way it is, we just um, uh, interact more, you know. My, my staff works hard. They're talented. They're a huge part of the reason that we're successful. So they have earned the right to, like, you know, do a special, you know, present it to the servers so that they can present it to the guests. And, you know, hey, this person did that tonight and express themselves, express their journeys, because, you know, we've all been on such different journeys that we all kind of have an arsenal of you know, recipes and thoughts and ideas and, and procedures, but, you know, everybody's journey is different, so we all have different knowledge. So to let everybody bring their knowledge to the table 
make everybody a part of the team, invest in everyone in the restaurant, and I just think it's a good way to manage. Yeah, absolutely. What Chef is describing is essentially a mastermind, right? Like, why limit the minds that you have working for you? If you if you let them contribute, they might bring things to the table that you would have never considered, and it's the power of one mind versus however many minds you want to open up, Sure, right? Uh, so powerful. So uh, what were some – was that – so was it a lesson to not be as strict as these, as these some of these past mentors were, or where's the lesson there? Well, I think you know, growing up also with you know a fairly strict father, mm-hmm. and then you know going, which I think prepared me almost yeah. for you know what I was about to go under in the culinary world and in my education. Um, you know, thick skin will develop, or you will fail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but. Uh, I just think coming into, you know, now, um, we've just decided to, to be different and go about it differently and, and to teach differently. Um, and, you know, the world's just changed. Yeah. I, I think there's nothing wrong uh, with discipline, right? With, mm-hmm. with having that discipline. And the kitchens of the past were very regimented, very disciplined. And there's a lot to learn there, too. But at the same time, there is a lot to learn about being human and emotionally intelligent and, like, and empathetic, right? Uh, and it sounds like those two worlds are kind of colliding right now where we're, being, we're getting the best of both. Um, so what about, I'm curious, a uh, huge fan of Danny Myers uh, and the, the Union Square Hospitality Restaurant Group, Tom Colicchio. What were some of the big lessons you, you drew spending your time with that team? Well, just spending time in that kitchen was amazing. You know, living in New York was amazing. You know, having a day off in New York is amazing. <laughs> um, you know, the whole experience of New York was wonderful. My brother was up there. Um, you know, he graduated from NYU and and started a business in New York and actually had a bedroom for me. Nice. At like this big, you know, tower like apartment where the downstairs is bedrooms, the middle floor is, you know, the living quarters, then there's a loft where the actual business was. And I was just so extremely blessed to be able to go to New York and live in such an apartment for such a low amount of money because of my brother you know, invited me to, to, you know, have that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, it actually let me have a great experience while living comfortably. Um, where other people I was working with were after the same thing that I was, which was, you know, knowledge. Um, but you know, had to live in, in very expensive apartments Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn and, Mm -hmm. you know, travel an hour to and from work. Um, but I mean the, the quality of food at Gramercy Tavern, you know, is, is the best, of anywhere that I've ever worked, mm-hmm. um, learning how to, you know, prepare that food and, and being part of a team, you know, like that. Um, what do you mean a team like that? Describe well, just the team. everybody in the kitchen is focused and talented and you got to understand this is New York. I mean, if you're not focused, if you're not talented, there's a stack of resumes downstairs in the office, in the chef's office, two feet tall, you know, unlike most cities where, you know, we may have to settle for, um, certain levels of talent because the pool is just not deep, you know. Um, but in New York, that's certainly not the case. So you know, it, it's a it's a it's a swim or sink, you know, situation. And um, everybody who lives in New York, I think, is there to become good at something. So there's there's passion and integrity and you know energy and desire and um, to be surrounded by people like this just feeds into your own you know um, growth. Um, so it was just a very positive place to, to live and work. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, personally, my soul is happier and in, in a place, you know, a little more like Tennessee, mm-hmm. you know, Nashville, not exactly the big city, but a big town. Mm-hmm. So what year did you stop doing all of these uh, apprenticeships and in, or I guess uh, stages? Uh, was there a time when that came to a stop? Well, when I graduated from the Greenbrier in November, I think, of 2002, and I haven't even talked about my chef, Peter Timmons, who was my chef at the Greenbrier. Okay. And um, truly oh, my mentor. Yeah, dive in. You know, truly my mentor in life was, was Peter Timmons. Um, he's a certified master chef in Ireland, um, also passed his certification here in the United States. Every country has their own federation when mm-hmm. it comes to, you know, culinary. Um, and I don't know too many people who have become master chefs in two countries. Yeah. Um, but you know, my, my chef, Peter Timmons was just an amazing man. Um, you know, such an awesome person to study under, um, and just, you know, had my, my loyalty, you know, every, every time I would go to work, um, like what, what do you need from me today? You know, I'm here, I'm ready to work, you know, I'm young, I'm strong. Um, and, and that's what it was, you know, from like 20 to, you know, when I graduated there and then even after, you know, graduating, like the way that you work in this industry from the age of, you know, 15 to 35 for me, um, you know, it's just it's it's your life. Mm. So what was it about this chef, Chef uh, Peter Timmons? Is that correct? Yes. Right? Uh, what was it about him uh, that was able or that, I guess, made it possible for you to have so much commitment to him. How did you, how did he get that commitment from you? Well, I think the way that our relationship started had a lot to do with it. Um, the first two years I was at the Greenbrier, uh, the executive chef was a man named Robert Wong. And although I, I worked very hard and tried very hard, um, my first two years there, I was not allowed to enter the apprenticeship program because they felt like I needed more time to be ready for the program. After not getting into the program after year two, I decided that I'd come back for year three and just continue to work and learn, and then I would probably leave. Well, in the winter of that year, when I was down in New Orleans working for the Brennan family at Palace Cafe, Chef Wong left the hotel, and and Chef Timmons entered the hotel. He had worked there previously years ago as a sous chef, but now he was back to take over as the executive chef. And when I got back to town from my stay in New Orleans, like one or two days before I was due to, you know, clock back in, I go to the Greenbrier, I check in, I go to the kitchen, you know, say hi to, you know, friends that I haven't seen for a couple months and to introduce myself to Chef Timmons. And, and while I was introducing myself to him, he asked me what year of an apprentice I was. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not an apprentice. And, and he says, well, why aren't you an apprentice? And I said, well, for two years now, I haven't been led into the apprenticeship program. And he was like, but you want to be an apprentice? And I said, yes, that's, that's why I'm here, is to become an apprentice. And he says, well, I'm going to ask around about you, and, and I'm going to find out what your deal is. And if I find out that you're a wanker, of course, you know, <laughs> Chef Timmons is an Irishman. Um, he says, I'm going to let you know that's what I found out. And I said, well, you know, that's fair enough. Um, and then um, he told me to come back to his office, like, you know, three days later at this time for the results. So that day comes along and I go up to the office and, and these stories are all in the book or most of them anyways. But when I go up to, into the office, we used to call that the chef aquarium because, you know, the kitchen at the Greenbrier, um, you know, almost the size of a football field. Um, and, and the chef's office was up steps 
a square office that was all, you know, glass. So even if Chef was at his desk on the phone, he could look down and see everything going on in the kitchen. And there was an intercom system that, you know, he could press a button and say something to you. Or, um, so, you know, the eye in the sky, man, the Chef Aquarium, you know, yeah. you're, you're never alone. <laughs> um, so, you know. That's how it should be. I mean, the, the, the role of the chef is to look over and to to mentor to get people up to the point to give them the knowledge that he has and then to slap them on the ass and kind of let them do their thing and then to you know recorrect am i wrong by saying sure that? sure no you're right and you know total observation and total awareness and you know walking around and correcting mistakes daily yeah um it, it, to know the standard and to bring the standard back to where it belongs right yeah um okay so one thing i love about this story about talking about chef uh Timmons is the fact that he gave you a chance and when you go to work for somebody and you and you're there for somebody they will in return be there for you well so that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of what happened here like why you're so loyal to him because he gave you a shot I was actually like when I walked back up into the office that day like all the major people from the hotel were up there the food and beverage director the catering director and I was like oh my goodness man like you know what office am I about to walk into you mm-hmm. know and, uh, you know, Chef Timmons looked at me and, and he was like, when we all call each other Chef of the Greenbrier, and he's like, you know, Chef, I'm, I'm busy in this meeting right now. Um, but he handed me the apprentice book. Nice. So I was actually the first apprentice allowed into the Greenbrier apprenticeship program by Chef Timmons. The other members of the class had been, been let in in November of the year before by Chef Wong yeah. before he left. And I took a lot of pride in that. Um, and then, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you're right. Um, you also earned it cause he did his research. He found out that you weren't a quote unquote wanker. Well, so <laughs> and, and even in the, in the conversation in the office, uh, when I told him that I wasn't an apprentice, the next thing that he said was who here does not like you. Yeah. And I thought that was a brilliant question because <laughs> there was somebody there that didn't like me. Yeah. And, and that person is the reason why I was being held back from mm. the apprenticeship program. And, and he found it all out, and he saw through it, and he let me in. And, you know, three years later, um, I don't necessarily like to say I graduated at the top of my class because there was many talented people in my class, but I did graduate with the highest medal. Mm. Um, because at the, you know, during the apprenticeship program at the Greenbrier, you know, we do many things. There's, there's agendas, just like school. You know, from the bake shop to the butcher shop to the breakfast line to the lunch line to the dinner line to stocks and sauces um, to the roast station to the sauce station to garmage. Um, you know, we spend time in all parts of the kitchen under the heads of those departments and we learn. And even if you don't like making cakes, well, that's too bad because you will be getting up at four in the morning and working pastries for six weeks mm. of your summer. Mm. You know, it's part of it. Um, so, you know, the, the program was, was very intense. And, and then we also had homework and, and what we call show work, which is of an Olympic level, um, where we have to do buffet platters for, for eight people. And there's many rules and we have to make the food and glaze the food. And, um, <laughs> this is very like a Boku style, yeah. um, you know, cooking, um, and we would be there, you know, after service until three in the morning for like the three or four nights up to a showing. Yeah. 
I'm loving this, Chef. I really am. Uh, but when you go to open a restaurant, I still want to learn more about uh, when you got to Nashville and from 2002 to 2012, uh, the things you were learning during that point. So really kind of take us through that evolution as a professional now that you're getting paid, you're, you're interning before, maybe you were getting paid as an intern. I was getting uh, paid yeah. a small amount. But yeah. yeah, but now this is your career. Now you're full you know, full into it. Uh, how do you evolve as a professional from this point on? You come to Nashville. Uh, start there. Well, um, I graduated the Greenbrier, and I, I was working in a slaughterhouse for a while because butchering was always important to me, and, and I enjoyed it. While doing that, I came to Nashville to visit some friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I quickly fell in love with Nashville and enjoyed Nashville so much in the five days that I spent here that I went back to West Virginia. I checked out of the Greenbrier. I packed my bags, and I moved back. And I had accepted a job at a restaurant that no longer exists in Nashville called Nick and Rudy Steakhouse Mm on 21st Avenue. Uh, It's now a a big apartment building, um, like so much is going on here in Nashville right now. Um, So curious, what was it about Nashville when you got here that made you fall in love? Well, I thought it was almost perfect for me as 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 a boy who had grown up in West Virginia and, you know, spent time in New Orleans and New York and Columbus, Ohio, you know, all bigger places, bigger cities. Um, You know, not to say that I'm a country boy because I'm not sure that I am, but, you know, I think Tennessee was almost just enough, you know, back road country and just enough city, as I like to refer to it, as a big town. Uh, the people were kind, I felt. The people that I met anyways. Um, the girls were really pretty, which, <laughs> you know, I met one and, and now have been married for 13 or 14 years. Uh, you know, two kids in a, in a house out in Kingston Springs, which is about 30 miles west of, of Nashville. Um, but uh, it was just a combination of everything. Um, that, that really made me want to come to Nashville and, um, you know, kind of start my career, so to speak, in Nashville. And the food that was being cooked in Nashville was, was kind of my kind of food, you know. Um, and it's, it wasn't just steak and potatoes back then, um, but it was similar food to what I was cooking at the Greenbrier. Um, but in my first two years in Nashville, I, I did learn a lot about, you know, not cooking for myself and cooking for the guest and, and learning what the guest want instead of learning what I want to cook. And, and that took some pride issues. Um, but ultimately, to be a good chef and a good business person, you've got to learn these things. And, and at some point in time, you're going to have to negotiate with yourself. Um, you know, what are you willing to do to find a happy place in the middle um, you know, between this. And um, I think over the years, along with the help of others, I, I kind of figured it out and I kind of learned how to cook for Nashville. And, okay. and it is the way I like to cook. And, you know, the food that we cook at Lachlan Table is, you know, a, a play on music. I've always said it's kind of my greatest hits, you know, yeah. like the food that I picked up here and here and here and here. And well, I love this about this experience and this about this experience. And I learned this method over here, this procedure over there. And, you know, I always said that when I owned my own restaurant, I would only cook food that makes me happy. Nice. You know, because that is going to, you know, show when the guest eats it, you know. And, and when you work for someone else and when you're the chef for someone else, um, there's always going to be a couple dishes on the menu that maybe aren't really too close to your heart. And maybe you even dislike them mm-hmm. and you don't like prepping them. You don't like cooking them during service. Um, but it's on the menu and you have to. Yeah. It's part of your job. Exactly. 
you know, and I remember like getting grumpy over having to make crab cakes. And I'm like, man, fuck crab cakes. You know, if I never have to make another crab cake in my life, that would be fine with me. And it's also something that you see everywhere, you know, creme brulee, crab cakes. You know, and I just didn't want to be that chef that did what everybody else was doing. Not you know, I wanted to be better than that and cooler than that. And, um, you know, maybe not necessarily too far outside the box, but I wanted to get out of the box a little yeah. bit once in a while. So I'm curious, uh, like, I think we're going to come back to your greatest hits, right? And uh, developing a concept that resonates with you and that's near and dear to your heart. But why Nick and Rudy's? I mean, you have all this experience. You've been working with some incredible people. You've surrounded yourself with amazing mentors. What was it about this restaurant that you said to yourself, you know, this is, this is the place. I mean, with that kind of resume, I feel like you probably could have gotten a job at almost any restaurant in town. Well, I think I could have. And, and there was, you know, some, I had some opportunities at that point in time to, you know, go down to Florida and, and possibly work with Lawrence McFadden at the Ritz Carlton. And, um, I, you know, I was, I was what, 26 years old, I think. And I was just kind of tired of taking instructions, mm. you know, and I'd been a good student for a long time now. Um, and I'd been working hard for a long time and I, I kind of just wanted to try to do this my way for a minute and like, see if my thoughts could work or, or see if the food that I want to cook will work. And I think, you know, having the opportunity um, to have my own kitchen in a, in a place such as Nashville with so many awesome things going on, um, yeah, that sounded cool to me. You yeah. know, like what an opportunity. Like I'm moving to Nashville. Can we just be quiet for two seconds? Can you hear it? Oh, as I say, be, let's be quiet. Everything, all the noise stops. Well, this is why I want to take the podcast on the road. I love that I can hear chopping in the background, that I can hear glasses being stacked. It's Friday night. Uh, it's, it's beautiful, man. Uh, I hope you guys are appreciating it at home, too. Uh, okay, so did Nick and Rudy's provide this opportunity for you to kind of do your own thing? You weren't the executive chef, were you? I was. Oh, you came I, in as I the executive chef? I came on board as the oh, executive okay. chef and, and really helped turn that restaurant around. So um, basically, it was an opportunity for you to be someplace where you could start you know, being the leader in creating and steering the ship. And when I came on board, you know, Nick and Rudy's was kind of a common steakhouse where they had an a la carte menu. Yeah. Three months into it, I changed that into okay. a restaurant that had composed dishes. Okay. And so, so you spent um, five years there, right? I did. So what did you learn about yourself as a leader moving into this role? Anything uh, that you didn't realize? So much, man. So much. I mean, I had been taught how to cook. You know, so nobody really teaches you how to be a manager. Nobody really teaches you how to order and purchase. No one teaches you how to write a menu. No one teaches you how to cost analysis. Um, you know, even like the, the first time I rolled out the menu and, and the saute person's getting their ass kicked and the grill guy's doing nothing. And, you know, it took me a night to realize that I completely wrote this menu wrong. I've made the saute person way too busy. The grill guy's not busy enough. And these are things that maybe you never think about, but... Like, how do you write a menu of good, awesome food, but make sure it's even across yes. the board for all stations? And, of course, there's always going to be oddities where, you know, you got a Friday night where steaks just kick ass and, you know, you sell 20 more than you thought you might. Um, and I call those oddities, you know, because for the most part, we can I can tell you right now, out of the 265 people we're about to cook for tonight, I can tell you what we're going to make on everything on the menu and the specials, and I guarantee you my numbers will be close. Mm. And that's how we know how to prep. Mm -hmm. You know, we know how much of each item we need to prep on a daily basis. Um, 
And those numbers don't fail us except for on nights where we have oddities. Um, like, you know, we have a pork and shrimp dumpling. It's a shumai-style dumpling. Um, you know, we know on Monday through Friday or Monday through Thursday, we want 20 of those prepped. And there's four per, so that's 80. You know, but then we know on Friday and Saturday we need to have 25 orders prepped. So now we're making 100 every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and these numbers don't typically fail us. Yeah. And, but, I mean, you know, I always do say that PARs are a constant study. And, like, when the seasons change, you need to restudy because people will start eating differently. You know, whether it's, you know, summer into winter or winter into spring, you know, eating styles are going to change. And, and you got to be mindful during those um, changes because you will probably have to adjust some of your order and purchasing, which will then lead to adjustments on your prep uh, prep list um, and then adjustments on your sales. Yeah. You know, so, so it sounds like the big lesson here is you don't just design a menu based off of what you want to cook. You have to consider how is this going to affect the team, uh, how is this going to affect the pars and all these things, all these different variables that you really have to like your, your attention has to be everywhere. Well, and I think too, as you grow and as I've grown, I think what becomes the true dictator is mother nature, mm. you know, and you know, allow her to be in control and, you know, like what is local right now, what's being harvested. Um, you know, of course, like currently we're in the toughest time of the year, um, as far as things being harvested locally, but you know, the farm that we use and the farm that we've always used in Beth page, uh, white squirrel farms, Um, we have a great relationship with them and, you know, they have greenhouses right now, you know, pumping out kale and lettuce and arugula. Um, you know, we're still able to get some sweet potatoes, um, you know, but then another great thing that is formed here in Nashville is a thing called Nashville grown where, um, farmers within a hundred miles of Nashville have kind of joined this co-op and, and they send their inventory in all this inventory gets sent out to chefs and now we can buy, um, and then it gets delivered, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's just become a, a great, and there's, there's so much local going on here, whether it's cheese or meat or produce or wine or, or beer or liquor. <laughs> um, I mean, even our tables were made locally. Our signs it. were made locally. Our tape, our, our books were printed locally. Um, you know, we don't claim to be a local only restaurant, but we certainly do focus on local before we spread out. Awesome. So five years at Nick and Rudy's Steakhouse, you leave. Why did you leave? <laughs> I got fired, man. Okay. Um, and I got fired because another man uh, told the owners that they could make them more money than I was currently making them. Mm. Um, and I can remember it perfectly, uh, being sat down at the table, and I remember being shocked like, you guys are firing me? You're out of your mind. Um, but the restaurant, I guess, maybe was, you know, just struggling financially. And, of course, I didn't know the details. Um, you know, I was the chef, but I wasn't told everything about the business. Um, but uh, ultimately, yeah, I was fired. And, and, you know, I had so much loyalty to, to you know, Nick and, and Rudy um, that it was, it was, it was a – it was a difficult thing to go through and, and definitely part of my journey. But there was also like this little voice in the back of my head that was saying, you know, during my firing, this little voice in my head was just saying like, let this happen, man. Just, just let this happen Mm -hmm. because you know, what's going to happen next is probably, you know, more important than Mm -hmm. what's happening right now. And, you know, after that, there was times where I thought that I was going to maybe move. Like I didn't know if Nashville had a culinary future for me. Um, of course, little did I know what was about to happen in Nashville come like 2009. 
Um, but, you know, I was able to bounce back from Nick and Rudy's pretty well. You know, my wife and I just bought our first home. Um, it was a bit of a scary transition. Um, but uh, I was able to get a job at the Hermitage Hotel here in town, which, you know, at the time was probably the best kitchen in Nashville. Um, and then, you know, things continued to work out for me, you know, there ultimately um, helping open a restaurant called Eastland Cafe, which is where I met Kara, who mm-hmm. is my business partner, Kara Graham. Um, and, uh, you know, there again, like little did I know that, you know, walking into Eastland Cafe for day one that I was, you know, about to start a journey with my future business partner, mm. um, you know, but. Kara and I became a good team after, you know, two years of working together and our paychecks depended on how well we worked together because so did you come on to the Eastman as an executive chef? I did. Okay. Uh, and you, you start, you helped open that restaurant. First time ever opening a restaurant. Yes. So real quick, any big takeaways from that experience? Sure, we'll get man. back to I what you're just talking about. I mean, we were, we were testing recipes. We were, you know, writing menus. We were, you know, we, we called it back then. We called it juggling knives and hammers <laughs> because we would do, we would use both tools on the same day. You know, we would hammer nails and we would cut things and and we would, you know, prep for the future and and we would clean and clean and clean and and just don't even clean until the end, man. You know, I mean, it's like you want your restaurant to be clean and beautiful, but this was during construction and, um, you know, it it was just it it was a lot. But, you know, it went well and and the opening went well and, um, you know, it it was a really good experience for me to have there. And and then once again, I I become a head of a kitchen for which lasted about five years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was an executive chef in two other kitchens for five years at a time before, you know, becoming an executive chef of my own restaurant, you know, which is Lachlan Table. And, you know, something else I, I want to point out is, you know, while at Nick and Rudy's, um, I met so many people that are important to my life still today. Um, you know, and Nick and Rudy being two of them, my wife being one, I got still some of my best friends in life are from, you know, the Nick and Rudy days. Um, people still come to Lachlan Table who have followed me, you know, from restaurant to restaurant throughout the years. Um, you know, but one of the most important people is a gentleman named Floyd, who is Kara and, and, and mine, uh, third business partner. Okay. And, um, you know, Floyd just always... Um, had faith in me and, um, you know, watched me grow and, and, and stayed in tune with my career. And um, when I was at Eastland, you know, we all had the, the October of 2008 where, you know, everything just kind of fell apart financially. Um, you know, the market across the country yeah. was, was, was down and, and hurting and um, it was a very scary time. Um, but then Nashville... Uh, you know, began to kind of come back and, 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 and build themselves back up. And, and, you know, I I think we kind of saw it happening and, and, you know, we knew that, okay, in a year's time, it's going to be safe to try to open a restaurant. Okay. You know, like opening a restaurant right now would be an awful idea in 2008. Um, You know, and, and Floyd just being so amazing and intelligent and smart and, um, you know, having a banking and a law and a property, you know, background, um, you know, we, we decided to, you know, at one point in time, he says in about a year, we're going to start looking at property. And I just remember thinking to myself, like how excited I was to, you know, have this opportunity and, um, like to actually be a young chef 
like so many young chefs dream of opening a restaurant, yeah. but no young chef has $2 million in his back pocket. <laughs> so how are you going to do yeah. this? And, and if you are able to do it, who are you going to give your money to for the rest of your life in terms of mailbox money? Mm-hmm. You know, because in the beginning you would say yes to just about anything to get your own restaurant, you know? Um, but now, but not only beside the money, you have the team, you have the, the, the gentleman, you mentioned his name, uh, Real quick, I didn't Floyd. Have, Floyd, yep. uh, you had him the the uh, financial, the legal, all this stuff, the money. I'm assuming that's where the money was coming from too. Well, he certainly helped raise the money for sure. Yeah, and you also had your business partner at that time, or the person that was going to be your business partner, sure. Kara. Did you know at that time that she was going to be your business partner? Well, I think you know, three years into Eastland Cafe, you know, me and Floyd were already kind of connected, and you know, we would go out to lunch once in a while, and then we would talk about things and. Um, you know, it, it became clear to me at one point in time, and this is crazy, man. I haven't thought about some of this for such a long time, but there was a point in time in, in our, our job at Eastland where Kara started to get um, hunted by the wine purveyors and the wine companies, and she loves wine, and she would have been a great, you know, wine salesperson. And I thought she was probably going to accept the job, and, you know, I, I kind of. Uh, ima- imagine what it would be like to, you know, not have Kara as the GM. And, you know, that's when I think I decided, like, Kara needs to be the GM of the restaurant that I work at. Um, and she she surprisingly said no to the, uh, the wine opportunity, which kind of sh- surprised me. Um, but then I think that's when it kind of started for us. And, like, when her and I started kind of hanging out on the back porch – after work, you know, back in those days, smoking cigarettes, um, having a drink, um, and we began talking about the, the future of, of as a team, you know, opening a restaurant, and then you know, brought her into you know a meeting with Floyd and and uh, what did the, that conversation look like? You can't just glaze over that. What did that conversation, those conversations look like of opening, of building a team? Like, how did that go? Like dive into that moment well and i don't know if i kind of blindsided floyd by you know hey man i think it would be cool if if we brought care into this um but i mean the way that it is i mean we have such a great team Mm. you know and with me in the kitchen and care in the front of the house and and and, you know we kind of say that you know floyd's at thirty thousand feet um, you know, looking down over everything and, and keeping an eye on everything. And like the way that he sees numbers and percentages and margins, and it's just insane. Like, I just don't have that business sense about me, yeah. you know, but he does and Kara does. And, and now I can focus on food and, and Kara can focus on the front of the house and the wine program. And, you know, Floyd can catch any red flag that needs to be caught because he will. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how you would get one past us. So were you talking, when you were talking about developing the team, were you talking more about her coming on as a team member and, and you, like, approaching Floyd to say, like, we gotta, we got to bring you in on this? Uh, I just think that it was all so organic. Yeah. You know, like, I don't, I don't even know that it just, it just happened, you know? And, like, I knew it needed to happen. And, you know, I guess as a young person, when you're dreaming of of the future, sometimes you're the only person in your dream. Mm. Like for me as a chef, like I imagined I would cook and then I would probably sit in an office till two o'clock in the morning and sign checks. And, you know, I'd be on the computer doing things. And um, that was kind of foolish for me to, to think that way. You know, mm. I need to be in the kitchen. I need to be writing menus. I need to be, you know, developing, you know, future uh, food items and 
um, somebody else needs to be doing that. And, you know, Floyd has many great one-liners, but one of them that is, is true and great is do what you're good at. Mm-hmm. And we are a team of people who are doing what we're good at, doing what you love. Yeah. Um, and surround yourself with people who are good at what you're not good at, which is exactly what you did. And I say it all the time. Like, I don't see you being the best in this industry without partners unless you are a freak of nature and you can be good at all those things. But the odds are that you're not going to be one. You're not one of those people, right? Yeah. Most people out there are not one of those people. So surround yourself uh, with those people. And you do that by becoming the best at what you are good at. So you can attract onto yourself those other people who are strong where you're weak. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, we, we couldn't. I don't know how we could be a better team to be honest with you. Okay, so uh, this was 2008. You're saying 2009, we're going to start looking, 2009, 2010, but you didn't open until 2012. So what made it, was just, were you not expecting the economy to take as long as it did to recover? Well, I think we had our eye on this property for quite a while before we were able to successfully purchase it. Then, of course, the purchase, you know, takes time. Um, So... You know, we did open in 2012, but we secured this building in February of 2012, opened for business in August. I would say for at least six months before we secured the building, you know, six to 10 months maybe before that, we were in the morning, you know, uh, driving around and looking at uh, real estate Mm -hmm. all over Nashville, you know, studying, um, you know, prices of square footage in different areas of town and really trying to understand that. Um, of course, Floyd is already so knowledgeable on, on property and, and things like that. Um, so what were you looking for in a property? Like, let, Maybe we can get a lesson on uh, how to search for a property, what things you need to consider. What things were you looking for? What were you trying to consider? Well, I knew that I didn't want to be a cafeteria. And when I say that, you know, I want to have a controlled kitchen for, you know, not to say a small restaurant, but not a big restaurant either. Like I want, you know, myself or my sous chef to be able to touch almost every plate, um, you know. So I wanted like the typical kitchen, you know, the the grill, the saute, the salad, the you know, the the pastry department, mm-hmm. um, you know, just like all the kitchens I had really worked in yeah. growing up. Um, but then, of course, you know, when I was asked to write my wish list for Lachlan Table, the first thing that I wrote on my wish list was a wood burning pizza oven. Okay. And, you know, I was very connected to pizza. Um, I put myself through college, you know, making pizza at a, at a local pizza place called Tony's Pizza Den in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Um, you know, very special part of my life, you know, during those years. Um, but pizza is, you know, not to say it's my only thing, man, but um, I'm very, you know, uh, interested in pizza. You know, I like making it. Yeah. I like eating it. Um, it is, you know, probably my favorite food. Um, you know, people say cheeseburger, pizza, pizza, like <laughs> all day, every day, pizza. I might eat like two cheeseburgers a year. You know, I'm, I'm a pizza guy. Um, so, you know, the wood burning oven was so important to me. The smoker out back was so important to me. You know, our buddy Peg Leg Porker built that for us. Um, you know, cooking with wood is, is something that I'm just even more infatuated with today than I was, you know, five years ago. Mm-hmm. And it's something I want to continue studying and working on. And, you know, if, if I ever change up this kitchen a little bit or if, you know, we ever open up another concept, um, I'll continue to cook with wood 
Um, I just love it. It's an endless study. No piece of wood is going to be the same. It's not going to offer you the same amount of heat for the same amount of time. And, you know, the person um, involved in, you know, the cooking is so necessary, um, you know, to be there and to be involved and know when you need more wood and when you don't need more wood and when your temperature is too high, your temperature is too low. And, um I just love it, man. And, and it's so primal. Like, it is the beginning of, of cooking. Yeah. Like, can, can we all maybe just, you know, get back to the way things maybe used to be a little bit more when our DNA was truly connected to nature and, you know, wood and fire and, and, and you know, like, fire bringing heat and, and the gathering of people and socializing and the cooking of the food and protection. Yes. And like, everything a fire does, you know, light, heat, protection, you know, all those beautiful things. Um, like, I love fire, you know, and, and I want to cook with fire. Jeff, I love your passion, dude. Thanks. I really do. You're just on a tear right now. Uh, <laughs> so I love that. I really did. Uh, but if I'm trying to, to extract a business lesson from what you just share with us, make that list of the, your non-negotiables, the things that you need from a property that can sustain what you have to do to be happy in your business. And then that's going to determine where you one of the things that you need to con- take, take into consideration. Like, I need these things to be happy find a place that can deliver those things. Is that safe to say? Yeah. Well, I think the size of the restaurant was the most important thing. Like how many chairs are we talking? You know, how many people do we want to feed a night? Um, you know, and, and I think like sometimes I dream about like a 30 seat restaurant where I can cook everything myself every day mm-hmm. and like have one person serve it. Like that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. And like when I still do wine dinners for like 20 people and I'm alone in the kitchen, like that's what I fell in love with, mm-hmm. you know, was cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but along with owning a restaurant, you know, there's there's management and and so many other things. And those are things that you, you know, have to get good at. But, you know, the number of seats was important to me to be able to cook the kind of food that I wanted to cook without having to work, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, you know, the opening of Lachlan Table happened a month after my first son was born. Um so, you know, now I'm a father, um, and that's obviously changing my life quite a bit. And uh, I just don't want to be somebody who has to work six days a week, 16 hours a day. Um, and although that was me, you know, for the first year and a half of Lachlan Table, um, you know, to get it up and running and off the ground and, and learn what we needed in terms of staff and, and, and then find those people and hire those people and train those people and you know, six months in, I got to start taking, you know, one day off a week. Um, and then, you know, eventually, like, you know, now, currently, um, we've been open for five and a half years. And I have not worked a Saturday. Well, I've probably worked two Saturdays in the past almost year. Wow. Uh, just because of weddings and, and things that were happening here at the restaurant. But, you know, I told my crew, I told my sous chef, um, like, you know, I've got two young kids at home and, you know, my wife is kind of getting tired of me never being home on Saturday. And then I'm also kind of tired on Sunday cause I had a late night on Saturday. Mm-hmm. So like from a father standpoint, it was, you know, time to change some things about my professional life. And, and that meant, you know, working a little less and, and putting, you know, faith and trust into your management at the restaurant, into your staff at the restaurant. And, you know, I feel like, I kind of jokingly, you know, say the culinary gods, you know, the culinary gods have pleased me because I would like to think that when I was younger and I was growing up and I was working in other people's kitchen, I was pleasing them. You know, I was, I was being a good worker. I was being a good employee. I I worked hard. I I tried hard. Um, 
you know, so I think when it came time for me to need help, um, it was returned because of the person I was as I was growing and learning. Um, and I'd still like to, you know, think that's kind of true, you know? Yeah. I mean, I um, definitely agree that you get out of the universe what you put into it. Yeah. If you're busting your ass, you're putting your nose on, you're being good to the people that you're working for and you're showing up for them and you develop, you're going to learn that way too. You're going to, you know, you're going to create habits in yourself and that will only, uh, lead to success. And when you start practicing all these things, you learn working hard for other people and you become successful, you attract onto yourself the people who you were at that time trying to learn from the best, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a, it comes full circle. You know, you are the average of those you spend your time with. You became great. Other people know that that secret sauce too. That that recipe of surrounding yourself with people like you now. Right. So it, it does come full circle. But uh, you you mentioned some stuff getting to the point where you're not working 16 hours a day, six days a week. What were the key things you did? Really hone into the things that you had to do within your operation to give you that kind of freedom to, to spend Saturdays and Sundays with your family. Well, I mean, you know, the Saturday thing took you know almost five years. Um, I think Karen and Floyd, you know, decided in, in 2017 that our goal for that year was to, by the end of the year, you know, be managing managers because the talk was to be looking for a second location. Um, we decided to tap the brakes on the second location uh, last year just because Nashville is so busy yeah. right now. And, you know, we think that what costs $5 today might cost $3 in two years, mm. but we're not sure. But we decided that we would just, you know, focus on what we have. Yes. You know, this is enough. This can sustain everyone who works here a good living. And when things in Nashville do kind of change or plateau or whatever's going to happen in the next three years, we'll be watching. We'll be here. And if, you know, we see an easy, um, and easy is probably a bad word, but, you know, if we see a good opportunity you know, there's still a chance that we may take it. Yeah. But we're still kind of not sure about that. We That's something that we still need to agree on. But something that's um, huge there, too, is that's what you just said is going to be what determines your opportunities, not spreading yourself too thin, focusing on being great. And when you are great, that's when the opportunities come to you. People sure. will come to you with, hey, well, we've got a space opening up, you know? Well, and sometimes the second restaurant is, is the nail on the foot. Yeah, why? You know, Dive into I, that. I don't know. Like you know, maybe you spread yourself too thin. Maybe it ruins your personal life. I don't know. But like I've always told my partners, I would rather be at that Wednesday night t-ball game than have a second, <laughs> than have a second restaurant. Um, you know, because my focus is more. I want to be a chef, yes, but you know, I want to be a father and as I like watch documentaries on chefs and, and I read and I, you know, pay attention to social media. Um, I see a lot of chefs complaining about the same thing. And what a lot of them are complaining about is that they missed the first 10 years of their kids' lives. Mm. Um, you know, I'm not going to complain about those things. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be involved. And, you know, I really think that it's, it's an amazing dynamic right now where, where like I'm able to be a chef of a great restaurant and still get to be the parent that I want to be and that my family needs me to be. So before I ask if there's anything that we haven't covered, I want to ask one more question. Uh, what is what is it about you and the Lachlan Table and your business partners uh, that has enabled you to surround yourself uh, with this incredible team you have? I mean, you, you started with talking about team. I want to kind of wrap up with talking about team. How do you surround yourself with this team? What do you do? Uh, you know, I wish I, I had an answer for that because I just don't know. All I know is that you know, 
the 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 magnet, you know, the people that were attracted to Lachlan Table from day one. I mean, we got nominated year one best new restaurant James Beard. I mean, and I mean our, those days we only had you know four people working in the kitchen. We were all doing everything. Um, you know, once again, while I was learning what we needed, um, you know, our wait staff has been great since day one. The bar, you know. Um, just such an amazing amount of people that have come through here and worked here and, and helped us. And, you know, once again, I would say it was organic. Like we, we didn't mean it to happen. We didn't create this culture. Um, and I don't know if it created us, but I think everything that we were before, you know, we opened Lock the Table just kind of came into play. And um, a lot of things that we have already learned, you know, came into play. You know, coaching people better than you were coached, you know, came into play. Um, you know, caring about your staff, understanding, you know, that people are people. And, and the fact that, you know, Karen and I and Floyd are also parents, we get, you know, that side of things. Where maybe if, if you worked for somebody who wasn't a parent, they would have no sympathy for your kid issues when someone might be sick or need to go to the doctor or whatever the case may be. You know, we get that because we're people too. Um, so instead of disciplining people for these things, we embrace these things and, and we help with these things. And, you know, we allow people to be people. Um, and it's not even something that we should have to allow. Mm. Like that should just be allowed. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're running a tight ship. Um, we are con- staying consistent on a daily basis, which is so important um, in all aspects from, you know, drinks to music to service to food. Um, Real quick question on that, because I I agree with you. It's so important. Consistency. How do you stay consistent? You know, I've always said it's an easy word to say, but a hard word to achieve. And it's just discipline. It's standards. And, you know, standards, so many people are are so eager and willing to break standards. Like, why did you even create them in the first place? You know, standards are meant to be kept. So when you've created them, you must keep them. And convenience is no excuse to change them. Um, so these are things that are important to us and, and things that we live by and things that we will not, um, not do. Um, so real quick, one more question. How yeah. do you keep these standards once you've set them? How do you know what your standards are? Well, I think there's rules and guidelines and, um, like here's an example. If, if the, if the truck from Atlanta breaks down and, and we get a phone call and we realize that our fish isn't going to show up at the back door today and I've only got, you know, six orders of fish left over from last night. How do I solve this problem? Well, is there another local fish place I can go to? Probably. I can call them. Let's say none of the, let's say nothing is available. Um, I would rather 86 the dish after selling the six than going to a store and buying a subpar product just to have it. And I can tell the wait staff the truth. Hey, guys, the, the truck broke down, and, and we don't have fish tonight. Yeah. And they can tell the guests the truth. And they're going to appreciate that. And they're going to appreciate that yeah. we didn't try to pawn something, a subpar product, off on them. But then I think it also opens up a whole other avenue of possibilities. Like, you came in tonight wanting the fish. You get the bad news that there's no fish. But check this out. We've got this or maybe this. Mm-hmm. And now you kind of you know, um, adjust yourself to your new choices and you make a choice that you didn't know you were going to make and you wind up having one of the best evenings you've ever had, mm-hmm. you know, and that's putting yourself in the restaurant's hand, in the chef's hand, having some faith in the people in the kitchen, you know, having faith in your server to, you know, guide you to the right wine, to the right dish, um, whatever the case may be. And I think it just makes your experience that much more special. Um, 
and I'm not I'm not pushing it and I'm not, you know, making myself change my standards because a truck broke down. Mm-hmm. That's not good enough. Yeah. Chef, this is great. Uh, anything we didn't discuss up to this point, anything that's near and dear to your heart, something you need to get out out there into the universe while I still have you in this free flowing part of the conversation before we go to the speed round? Um, I don't know. You know, I was thinking about something this morning from, from reading a tweet and it reminded me of the first year that we were open. Um, I, we had a, a blog written about us that wasn't, you know, so nice. And I remember it making me angry and I, I was just telling the story to somebody this morning. Um, and I did get angry and, and I wanted to call the person who wrote the blog and, and say some things to them. And, you know, like, who are you to, you know, judge or, you know, like, what did you fail at in life to become a blog writer? Um, you or, know, or a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this is when like blogs were start, still kind of getting popular. And <laughs> I just remember being so frustrated, man. And I called my brother and I started telling him what I was upset about. And he said one word to me. He said, congratulations. And I said, well, you know, what, what kind of comment is that? You know, and he says, well, congratulations. And I said, why are you saying congratulations? And he said, well, you've put yourself in the position of being critiqued. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was at that moment, he, I mean, he totally made me do a 360. And I, I stopped being angry and I stopped caring about what, what somebody else, you know, thought about their experience at Lachlan Table. And, you know, I saw it more from, from his perspective. And I really thought it was brilliant, you know, and it, it helped me understand things better. And I think it's changed me in general, how I look at everything. And, and you know, when, when, when you're being a chef and you're being critiqued by so many people, um, I mean, every night your guests are, you know, critiquing you whether they say they are or not. Um, you know, there's so much social media in the Yelps and everything that people get to go home and hide behind their computers and, and share their, you know, not very important opinions about their experience because, you know, what are they saying? But, you know, I just, it was one of those things that really helped me and, um, helped me see things better. And, uh, I just always appreciated that, you know, from my brother and, um, you can't make everybody happy. And if you let the one or two people that has, have, you know, that had that critique get to you and bring yeah. you down, then you're, you're missing the point, right? Well, and I think, you know, when you really don't care what other people think is, is when you truly are free, mm. you know, and, and, and you're free to do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I've studied food enough and, you know, I've studied the clientele of Nashville enough to, to, you know, you know, not to say that we're perfect, but, you know, most of what we're doing is good. Mm-hmm. Some of what we're doing is great. Um, so when other people have other thoughts, you know, you just kind of allow them to have it and, and it's fine. Yeah. Um, because when I get home and, you know, I hug my family and, you know, you know, playing hockey with my son in the garage, um, this isn't going to matter. Yeah. What a great way to uh, go into the break. We'll be right back after thanking our sponsors. All right, guys, it's time to get real and answer this question honestly. Does the quality of your website match the quality of your restaurant? If the answer is no, you need to do something about it because 89% of your guests will go to your website before going to your restaurant. So you've got to make sure you're bringing it to all aspects of your business. And this is where Bento Box comes in. Not only will Bento Box help you deliver your brand and your story online, but it will help you leverage 
leverage the full potential of the internet because websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that help you drive revenue. With Bento Box, easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events, plus way more directly from your website. Find out why Bento Box is trusted by thousands of restaurants around the world, including past and future guests like Suvla, Pizza Emily, 11 Madison Park, The Meatball Shop, and more. Head to GetBento.com and make sure you mention Restaurants Unstoppable to get up to $1,500 off your initial setup. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like this foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. Again, we're back. My first question for you, Chef, is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? <laughs> oh, man. Um, maybe just being an understanding person. Um, and I'm not sure I've always been one, but I think I'm getting better at it. Beautiful. Let's put social and emotional intelligence. Cool. I dig it. Uh, what's your biggest weakness? Oh, man. You know, in, in the restaurant business, I don't know, maybe my desire is to be a father, and I wouldn't call that a weakness, but um, it just pulls me sometimes from the restaurant, you know? Like, when I'm done here and I know that I'm done for the day, I, I, I go to where I'm needed next, and, and that's home. I want to, You know, honestly, at the end of the day, everyone talks about work-life balance, and I think that that doesn't exist. It's a blend. It's how well you blend the two, so you can do what you love. And it's your life's work, not necessarily going to work, but you're just going, it's your life's work, then making time for those people in your life. And you need that happiness. Because if you were to neglect your family, how happy do you think you're going to be? That That's all going to trickle down into everything else that you do in your life. So you can call it a weakness. I'm going to call it a strength. Yeah. Uh, but we'll move on to the next. <laughs> uh, what's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Uh, when I'm interviewing someone... Um, I tell you, my, my question for fun that I throw at him in the middle of the interview is, what book are you reading right now? <laughs> okay. Uh, and what, what are you hoping to get? At? Like, is there your book or? Uh... No, no, no. And, it, uh, you know, I don't even care what the answer yeah. is. Um, you know, I'm looking for a reaction. Um, and I don't, like I said, I don't care. Like, do you read? Do you like to read? Like, I'm, I'm also like learning more about the yeah. person. Like, what are you into? Um, like when you go home, do you play video games? Do you play guitar? Do you like do push ups and work out? Like, 
you know, and, and just, you know, the more you know about everybody, um, it just, I think, strengthens the relationship. Mm. So you're just trying to find out who they are, not necessarily what they do. Right. Cool. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> that was a voice burp or a throat burp. <laughs> Ugh, gross. Okay. Uh, maybe I won't edit it out. What, what's a current challenge today? How are you dealing with it? Um, well, our, our AM sous chef is working his last shift currently, um, as we speak. Um, and he's been a, a very important part of, you know, Lachlan table for the past, you know, four years. Um, so we're working through that. We're moving people into new positions next week. Um, we're adding some hours to some people's schedule who's uh, part time and, uh, it will be a study for the next three weeks on, you know, what we need to do, who we need to train, what needs to be trained, and do we ultimately need to, you know, make a hire. Mm, cool. I love how you just don't, like, you know, rush into it, but you really test out the wires. You provide opportunity for that inward promotion, that growth, uh, and that's smart, slow. And Absolutely. If you, if you get your people to where they need to be, you can do that kind of stuff. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Well, I think controlling your emotions is just important in life in general. Um, and it's, you know, hard, you know, when it's 830 on a Friday night. And like I said, you know, you're, you're getting your ass kicked on the, on the saute station. Um, you know, whatever part of your character wants to come out will come out. Um, and, you know, being busy doesn't give you the right to be rude. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's always important to, you know, treat those around you with, you know, respect and, um, you know, the fact that Karen and I are also people who have grown up in this industry, um, we're not just like rock and roll stars who made a bunch of money and thought it would be cool to open a restaurant. You know, we love this industry. We've worked this industry. We know this industry. And when I look at my grill cook at 830 on a Friday night, I can tell by the look in his eyes that he's getting his ass kicked. And I'm not going to yell at him. I'm going to help him, mm. you know, and, and being able to recognize these things and work with people instead of just being like a kind of a, a dick person who barks, um, you know, that's not going to work. That's not going to, you know, maintain your staff. People aren't going to want to work for you. Um, but also the beauty of it is, is that if me or Karen needed to, you know, she could wait a table. I could work the grill station, you know, where we can fill in, you know, now is that what we're currently doing? I haven't worked a station in my kitchen for over a year and a half. Beautiful. That's- now, you know, the first <laughs> year and a half, that's all I did. Yeah. While doing the ordering and purchasing and, you know, everything else, menu writing. I used to write menus between midnight and 2 a.m. Typically was the time I would sit down at a table and, and write menus. Um, I write menus in the morning now. Like, <laughs> I get up at 6.15 a.m. now, man, instead of like 10 o'clock in the morning nice. and go to bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. I go to bed more like at, you know, 10.30 to midnight and get up at 6.15 because I got to get my boys to school. Um, you know, I go to the gym three days a week. You know, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I, you know, I quit smoking cigarettes five years ago. You know, I drink very little alcohol, if any. Um, you know, I've just started taking better care of myself. Um I and I, I, I enjoy the change. Like, I enjoy my life. I enjoy getting up at 6.15 and going to bed at, you know, 11 and, you know, drop my kids off and coming straight to the restaurant. Like, I get here at 8.30 in the morning. Um, you know, so it's, it's a new schedule for me, but, but I really like it. So, I mean, there's two kind of answers here. I feel like it's, you know, controlling those emotions, but at the same time, also controlling yourself and never ending a constant improvement of yourself. Uh, but if you know this, 
at a younger age and you know that you're who you are is direct or directly proportionate to who you become, like what you're doing every day, like you can start making those changes earlier. And I feel like attract a success onto yourself earlier. Well, I'm not sure if people in my home or at the restaurant, you know, know this, but you know, since I've been going to the gym three days a week now for six months, um, and I don't have plans on, you know, stopping, um, I think I'm a, I'm a better person, yeah. man. You know, I got feel better. I act better. I make better decisions. My brain works better. I'm more patient. Nice. Um, and as a chef, as a father, as a husband, as a son, as a brother, as a friend, I mean, all these things are positive in, in all my relationships. Yeah. It reflects in your life. Absolutely. I love this, man. Uh, what's one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? So these are things like service standards, but are, are standard within your restaurant, not standard within the industry. Um, this is Kara's question. Well, you know, I mean, it's pretty common. Like, you know, obviously we need to be 100% at 4 o'clock. You know, that's when we open. Um, you know, that's that's a rule, and I can't even tell you the last time that that hasn't, you know, happened. Um, you know, things like the, the last plate looking as good as the first is always important. You know, the guest that walks in at 9.55 is just as important as the guest that walks in at, you know, 5.55. Um, and that's it, man. That's, that's a big one there, too, because, you know, kitchens will get upset about, you know, that last two top. You know, when there's only five minutes of service left. But, and here's what I'll tell them, man. We close at 10 o'clock every night. Like, we could stay open till 11 every night. You know, but in the beginning, we did stay open until 11, but we didn't find that the business that we were doing between 10 and 11 was worth it. Mm-hmm. And we were making enough money between 4 and 10 to where I think we were satisfied and, you know, meeting our pro forma. Um, so don't ever get upset at that last table, man. And, and I see a lot of, you know, in the years past, people will do that. Um, you know, what you're in a hurry to go nowhere, you know, like, you know, it's just important to embrace, you know, all the guests because, you know, another philosophy we have here at Lachlan Table is, you know, whether you're walking out the front door or the back door, you know, whether you're a guest or an employee, we want everybody to want to come back. Yes. And I heard a great, I can't remember what episode it was, but it was somebody on the show that made the same point. It's a great point. And instead of if you, when you get to that point where somebody is walking in at 9.55, right, you're closing at 10, be grateful that you're in the position that people still are coming in the doors until 9.55. Not everybody is so lucky. And you can flip it. And take it from a moment of anger to gratitude real fast and just be happy that you have that, you have that chance. Right? I can remember back at Nick and Rudy's. Uh, I was young, of course, which is why I'm sure I did something foolish. Um, but I can remember calling a guest an asshole. And I can remember one of my owners saying to me, you know, which asshole are you talking about? The one that's helping pay your paycheck? And I understood yeah. what his point was. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, at that point in time, I probably, you know, made a decision to, to no longer act that way. Yeah, beautiful. Um, awesome stuff. What's one book that's a must read to make you a better person or a restaurant operator? Oh, a book, man. I'm into so many books right now. I should have said, what book are you reading right now, Chef? Oh, man, I'm, I'm <laughs> loving the Joe Beef book. Um you know, I've, I've recently got myself involved in uh, a lot of Appalachian uh, cookery uh, studying. You know, I'm from West Virginia. Um, we ate ramps when I was young because they grew in the backyard. You know, now they cost $22 a pound and chefs in New York want them, you know, as soon as they're available in spring. Um, you know, so, you know, that, that's, that's, that's where I'm from. And some of these things that I grew up with that, you know, in the style of our grandmothers and mothers, as I like to say, you know, the way that I like to cook, um, you know, the studying of, of Appalachian culture is, is interesting to me and something that I've currently got myself back into. 
Um, and then also with research and studying social media in, in this industry is so positive and, and Instagram probably being my favorite because I'm following all the chefs from all over the world and seeing their nightly specials and, you know, their collaborations with other chefs and, and what they're doing. And um, it's just such a, a beautiful industry, um, you know, through literature and pictures um, that really relate to the left brain side of us kind of people. Yeah. And um, I should take this opportunity to mention your book, Lachlan Table, Community Kitchen and Bar, which uh, your publicist or your, your, your marketing, uh, Stephanie, uh, told me that uh, it's so much about your story. And if I had known that, I probably would have prepared and gotten the book. Uh, I, I assume it was a cookbook. And we, we're, we're here to talk about your, your background and who you are and what you become, uh, that I don't really spend much time reading the cookbooks. But if I had known that your story is within this book, I would have probably gone after it. So what's one lesson from your book that I can link to in the show notes uh, that would make somebody go out and want to get it? Um, I don't know if it's just like organically following your, you know, your heart. Um, you know, I feel like this this path was, you know, more or less laid in front of me. Um, I just had to find it and then I had to, you know, stay on it. Um and, you know, it, it's been a beautiful path for me. And, uh, you know, in this world that is so uncertain and, 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 and you know, seems so difficult for some, I'm, I'm truly grateful to have found a, a craft to study and, you know, be a slave to, so to speak. And uh, I'm able to make a living, you know, doing this. I'm able to provide for my family doing this. Um, you know, find what you love and let it kill you. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I will be linking to that book in the show notes and I will be buying a book before I leave here today. Cause now I'm, I'm interested in it for sure. Uh, and let's see, we're almost wrapped up a couple more questions. Actually, you know what? Uh, share one online resource or tool kind of say Instagram there. I sure, feel like sure. you kind of dove into that one. Uh, what's one technology you've adopted in your restaurants that has made your operation more efficient, more effective, more profitable? Um, I don't know. Maybe there's social media again. You know, I mean, I don't use any fancy tools. We don't sous vide. Yeah. Um, I don't make, you know, I don't do spherification or anything like that. Um, I'm going to give you an out here because I got your business partner, Kara, coming on. She's the uh-huh. front of house. I'm sure there might be some uh, some tools you might be leveraging in that regard. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll let her. I mean, definitely, you know, one. this is Nashville. We got to have a smoker <laughs> out back. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is the last question. It's a big one. So get ready for it. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity, the industry, and your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom, the things you know to be true, what would they be? Well, I think, first of all, I think education is so important because that is what you leave behind. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You know, and that's how we truly live forever. Um you know, in like, like, are you asking like specific skills? No, anything you know to be true. And that first one, education is so important because that is what you leave behind. Yeah. Just hit me so hard in the heart, man. Because that's why this podcast exists. It's to leave that that knowledge behind, the education, to pay it forward. Sorry, you got me really excited there. What's two and three? Um, well, you know, I think running a restaurant, running a good restaurant. It is possible to be profitable. 
Like I hear so many restaurant owners like, you know, failing or struggling or they can't afford this or they can't afford that or, you know, well, why is that? You know, are you dipping into the till for, you know, nose candy every night or are you are you drinking and eating all the profits or are you inviting all your friends in to eat for free? Um, you know, those probably aren't friends if, if they don't want to pay when they come visit you. Yeah. And not to say that we don't do nice things for our friends and our family because we most certainly do. Um, and our staff and, and all that good stuff. But even with kindness, a well-run restaurant can make money and be a positive part of the community. Um, so don't let anybody ever tell you that's not possible. So I'm going to put be profitable there because you need it to, to be successful. You need that fuel to drive well, the Well, and I think another thing that's important, and you know, you got to take care of your home and you got to take care of your job. But even that's not enough. And in the community part of our title, you know, Lachlan Table Community Kitchen and Bar, we are a strong part of the community. And it's important to do positive things for the community, whether it's be on the board at, you know, for local organizations or whether it's to, you know, donate uh, a certain amount of our daily income during community hour to our local elementary school. Um, you know, being involved in different events throughout the year that raise money for, for local um organizations um you know it's very important to Karen and i to you know yeah we opened a restaurant you know not necessarily to win awards but to send our kids to college um and but like being a positive part of the community it was also very important to us and and if everybody could you know maybe focus on their own backyard a little bit then we'd all have beautiful backyards and you know what a beautiful community that could yes, be. I love it. Just to summarize, education, get it and give it. Be profitable. Take care of your community. Chef, this has been a great conversation. I'll be wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. Uh, <laughs> so who's one person you admire in this industry? Somebody you think I need to, to get on the show to share their story and advice? Well, in, in Nashville, uh, you know, probably one of my favorite chefs is, is my buddy Trey uh, over at uh, the farmhouse and the Black Rabbit. Um, Trey's doing amazing things. He, he works hard. And like a lot of times when people come into here and they're in town for like two or three days and we might be their first stop, you know, of course, I'll always tell them about, you know, my local favorites and, and mention all of our friends, you know, from, you know, City House and Roth and Daughters to Peg Leg Porker and Martin's Barbecue. But, you know, I always throw Trey in there. Um, you know, Trey's where I like to go before a Preds game. Go Preds. Um, <laughs> You know, he's right next to the arena and uh, just a hard-working kitchen producing awesome food. Look out, Trey. I'm coming after you. And actually, the second time since I've been in the city, he's been called out. Uh, Debbie Sutton called him out, too, from 8 Lavender. Oh, cool. So, yeah, awesome I've done stuff. some work over there yeah. at Riverwood Mansion. Absolutely. So, Chef, again, uh, thank you so much. Before I say goodbye, what's how can we connect? Social handles, email. If we want to come join your team, what's the best way uh, to Well, to uh, employment at LachlanTable.com is the email for that. Um, you can find Lachlan Table on Twitter and Instagram at Lachlan Table. Uh, just don't forget the E. It's L-O-C-K-E-L-A-N-D. Uh, myself, I'm Hal at uh, Hal at Holdenbage.com on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and then we also have a Facebook page, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, beautiful. I think yeah, you, get, you got most of it. I think that's it. <laughs> so you can also head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash chef Hal. I'll put 
everything we uh, talked about right there in the show notes, summary of today's discussion, a link to their book on how to connect all there in the show notes. Chef Hal, uh, again, thank you so much uh, for sharing your story, your path, your, your knowledge, your mentorship. My friend, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank this, you. this is the first time there's ever been a vacuum in the background of the recording. But I, <laughs> well, I we actually it. use uh, <laughs> you know we use shop vacs to clean the kitchen, and we have like a Ghostbuster backpack uh, to clean the front of the house. Um, and it works. It doesn't get any more legit than this, though, right? Okay, yeah. for real, we're saying goodbye. Cool. Peace out. <laughs> Good Lord, how do you summarize a conversation like that? Chef Hal Holden Beish, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your advice and your energy. Uh, man, so passionate. Some great takeaways from this conversation. It was really hard to narrow it down, but I think for me, the big ones were uh, go to work for the best and the best will come to work for you. And if you, you surround yourself with this greatness, you will become great and great attracts great. And that's how Chef has been able to get so many incredible people on his team. Uh, I so full heartedly believe in that. And uh, if you bust your ass for other people, when the time comes when you need them to bust their ass for you, they will. And I think that uh, his experience as the apprentice uh, really showed that he was putting his nose down. He was going to work, you know, doing the best he could and people recognized him. And when you do your best for others over time, that will come back and serve you and people will go to bat for you and do their best for you. And it, it proved to be true uh, when he was trying to get into that apprenticeship program. Uh, then also some other uh, great advice I pulled from today's conversation is something that comes up often on the show. And that's the power of three when it goes, when it comes to the partnerships, and especially getting a partnership where each individual person brings something unique uh, to the table. And I think the, the, the best combination is typically that front of house, that, that back of house in that financial or the numbers person, uh, that that power of three in that trio right there could be so powerful. Uh, and you never know who's going to be your next investor. I think this is really important to bring out too. Uh, when Chef was working at, I think it was Eastland or maybe it was Rudy's. I can't remember which place, but uh, that's where he met his current partner. And you, you never know where your future partner is going to be. So treat every guests like a VIP and who knows someday they could be very important to at least you. You never know uh, how it comes full circle. Uh, and then wrapping it up guys, some of the last thoughts I have for you is, you know, get as far ahead in this industry as soon as possible, as, as young as you are. Uh, Chef said he dedicated his entire life to this industry from the ages of 15 to 35, 20 years. He just dedicated his entire life. But, you know, live your life like no one else is willing to so you can live the rest of your life like no one else can. And what you put in is directly proportionate to what you get out. So the more you put in sooner on, the faster you can get ahead. And here's the thing, guys. Uh, your body is it going to last you forever? <laughs> like, especially in this industry. So the further you can get ahead, the, the sooner you can get ahead, the better. Uh, great stuff from today's conversation. And also, I've been wanting to talk to you guys more about my plans for Restaurant Unstoppable. As you know, I'm out here in Thailand, uh, living as inexpensively as possible, stretching my dollar. It's so cheap to live out here and surrounding myself with the people that can help me bring this thing to the next level. And I think, uh, 
one of the things I've come to learn uh, through so many of my guests that is just do one thing and do it better than anybody else. So uh, instead of trying to grow by doing more things, I've realized that the best way for me to grow is just to really just lean into doing only the podcast and uh, going as deep into the podcast as possible in uh, trying to, you know, I'm pretty out straight with three episodes a week by myself. I don't know if I can take on more, but I definitely can add more value by just getting smart in kind of expanding a upon what I'm already doing. So some of the thoughts I have, and I'm going to bounce these thoughts off you, uh, feel free to write me if you have any suggestions or recommendations. I want to create an archive of episodes and like order them by genre so you can go into the back end and you can find these episodes easily uh, by category. I want to offer file sharing. So if you have, say, like a labor management spreadsheet or an inventory spreadsheet or an accounting spreadsheet, you can share that spreadsheet and we're going to be able to rate those spreadsheets so we can all just like basically crowdsource all the files we possibly need and all the documents we possibly need in our restaurant. Um, Excuse me. Okay, I'm back. Um, That was weird. Uh, Also, uh, I would love to do a live document where we can constantly add to this document. And one example I have in mind is an opening checklist. So we come across so many crazy stories of things people don't consider when opening. Imagine if we could just keep a living document where everybody just is constantly updating what they've experienced and keeping you guys aware of some of those things you need to consider. Uh, fi- like a private Facebook page, forums where we're discussing uh, each new episode and some of the, the key takeaways. And I mean, these are just a few of the examples. One more example is a map where you can see where all of my past guest mentors restaurants are and their contact information. So if, if any of these things sound interesting to you, please let me know. Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. But you can find me on Instagram or Twitter, Eric Cacciatore. No, but really, though, let me know. Let me know if you like these ideas. Let me know if you're interested. Even if you think that that's cool and you're interested, shoot me an email saying, yes, Eric, I'm interested. I'm going to work trying to build this thing. I want to make sure you guys want it. And if there's something that I didn't mention that you want, let me know. Now's the time. Now's the time I can make it happen. So again, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com and Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Twitter. Please, just like the, the slightest response, letting me know I'm on the right track would be very helpful. All right, guys. Um, I think that's all for now. I'll keep the support coming. Five stars on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. I love them. They keep me going. And uh, it's great social proof for the podcast. But the best way to support this podcast is by sharing it. So anyone you know aspiring to be great, uh, make sure this podcast is on their radar. All right, guys. Now I'm saying goodbye. I love you all. Until next time. Peace out.